Tonight, an arrested development you can't miss. A cavalcade of stars. The shocking final moments will be presented live. And one of these people will die. Anyong, welcome to I Made a Huge Mistake, an Arrested Development podcast. I am your host, Darren. Join me in again from the previous episode. Um, I have uh, Enrique del de Castillo. Hello, Enrique. Hi, Darren. That's that was a pretty accurate pronunciation of my last name. <laughs> I guess that's the hardest part of my uh, name. I'm cl- I'm close to Europe, you see, so you know we we hear some of that. Um, and that's right. uh, also, <laughs> I have Keith Allison return as well. Hello, Keith. Anyong, once again, guys. And we're going to be discussing episode 309, which is which is titled SOBs, which in this case means Save Our Bluths. It was written by Richard Day and Jim Vallely, and it was directed by Robert Berlinger. I think it's the second episode that he's directed. It was the first episode broadcast in January 2006 on the 2nd of January, so obviously Fox... <laughs> Really wanted people to see this episode. Um, generally, generally anything broadcast in the first week of January, nobody bothers watching. So, and this is the last episode broadcast before they did the four episode pilot for the end of the the season. Um, you know, the next the next time I speak to you about an episode, it will be the first of four episodes that went out on the same night. Um, and uh it's worth noting as well that that this was the first episode that was um fin- was kind of like put into production as Mitch Hurwitz had heard that the show had been cancelled um they had been hoping for a back nine or you know even a back five maybe just to kind of keep them going a little bit longer um but they they basically were cancelled and so the the episodes that follow this were basically they're very full when I, when I speak about them, I'll be talking about a lot of plot. And even this one has got a lot of stuff going in on it. There's a ton of subplots. It's probably one of the busiest episodes. Um, and I think, you know, Mitch Hurwitz realised that they, they had five episodes left. And so they, they crammed like 13 episodes worth of plots into those five episodes. Just get as much done as they possibly could. Um, they, they knew that they were being cancelled. So that means that the final episode, obviously, which we'll be talking about, you know, in four episodes time does actually wrap everything up neatly. It wasn't a surprise, you know, it didn't come out of the blue, it wasn't just an episode that set up, you know, season four and then season four never came. It was it was an, it was an episode that concluded, um, you know, Ron Howard is there in the final seconds to conclude everything for us. So it was, it's neatly wrapped up. So this is the point at which Mitch Hurwitz knew that's what he was going to have to do. You know, explains why maybe all the stuff that comes up in the next few episodes with like M. Blue from the secret room and all that kind of stuff <laughs> moves at a very quick pace. <laughs> they, lift, they don't stop for the next few episodes. Um, and something worth noting here is we get to see um, the, the, the intro. There is no, there is no traditional intro. Uh, there, there isn't even really a sting like they've they done for some of the episodes in season three when they shortened it. There is this there's this grand announcement where they say tonight an arrested development you can't miss a cavalcade of stars <laughs> the shocking final moments will be presented live and one of these people will die <clears throat> and that introduction is basically as much as we get you know to start the episode and when they say a cavalcade of stars one of the stars that is is in there is Judge Reinhold <laughs> playing himself <laughs> now Judge Reinhold won't actually make an appearance as Judge Reinhold properly until the next episode. So that shows you how compressed everything had gotten. They basically got a chance to throw Judge Reinhold into two episodes, um, which I think is a wonderful joke. And of course, both Ben Stiller and Zach Braff return as their characters, Tony Wonder and Philip Litt. Neither of them say a word. They just literally appear on screen very quickly, and then that's it. 
Um, so the cavalcade of stars, you know, I think it also includes the entire of the Richter quintuplets. Right. Um, and and, uh, yeah. that banner, but, and uh, yeah, it's uh, a very and, dated, dated opening. Like the, these very big announcements of live episodes. Like, I remember that Will and Grace and Thirty Rolls had oh, yes. live episodes. I remember that. But that's not that's not a thing now. Yeah. I mean, I think Undateable had a couple of live episodes, but it's not like. A common occurrence now. It's weird. So it ha- here's the weirdest thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly interrupt you, Keith, and I'm gonna say actually the TV show Undateable did two like very successful live episodes in its second season, and then its entire third season, which was cancelled about a year ago, was all live. <laughs> Thirteen live episodes they did. I did an actual gasp, um, when and I they heard did that. it, and they did it, and they did it twice. They did it for the East Coast feed, or they did it for the West Coast feed. For I think the first three or four episodes, and then after that they just did it once, and then the West Coast got it taped essentially, um, which is a gag that appears at the very end of this episode as well. Uh, Jason Bateman does a little bit of ADR for one more final joke as they finish the episode. Um, so, but let's get to what the theme of the episode is, which is save our blues. Yes. And, and the narrator tells us that the blues were desperate, and um, like you say, like part of it is live, but also we have the gimmicks of. Um, the stunt casting, obviously, the cavalcade of stars, um, yeah. but also we have three D elements, like three <laughs> yeah. times in the episode. And um, I actually own a pair of three D glasses, you know, the the red green three D glasses. And I remember, like the first time I watched this episode when I had it on DVD, I put those glasses on, and the three D effect did not work at all because it oh. was a joke three D. Three D effect wasn't a real thing, so. Um, but we have George Senior on speakerphone. Um, you know, they let Larry Middleman go a couple of episodes ago when he was fired because of all the stuff to do with the, uh, you know, giving away the stuff at the wedding. He does actually make one final appearance here. I'd completely forgotten that Bob Einstein was in this episode um, because obviously he just appears and says that, you know, on behalf of somebody else who's at the fire and ice ball. Um, but so George Senior is on the speakerphone. Um, and we find out that, you know, Bob Loblaw is no longer working for the family because somebody wanted a boyfriend. And Tobias says, well, don't blame me. <laughs> of course, Michael goes, I was talking to Lindsay, actually, which is one of my favorite exchanges. And in this episode, actually, uh, you know, the, this season, they haven't really lent on Tobias's sexuality. They, they mostly concern themselves with hair plugs killing him. Um, but now he has all his hair plugs out, which is noted by the little kind of patches of blood that are on his head. Um, he now seems to be returning to the storyline of his, you know, acting career, and also there's a, a few more jokes in here about his sexuality. Uh, one of which is coming up very shortly, and is possibly one of my favourite jokes about uh, Tobias's sexuality in the show. Um, and Michael, you know, lays out the, the main plot for this episode, which is the defence fund, and he says. You know, that if we want a chance of keeping this family going past the next few weeks, we're going to have to pull out all the stops. And as he says that, the little 3D glasses, you know, put your 3D glasses on now comes up and the tomato comes flying at the screen. (laughs) It's such a great joke because there's no reason for anyone to throw a tomato really at this point in the meeting. Um, And obviously Job is the one who throws it because he was sitting at the point where the tomato came from. Um, And (laughs) I, I like how... Um, you know, they, they try to come up with, you know, an idea of how they're going to get a hundred grand, uh, to, to get like a retainer for, for another lawyer. And, uh, and Lindsay talks about, she, I love the way she phrases it by saying, uh, this isn't exactly what you're looking for, 
but maybe was just accepted into a private school. And of course, Michael's like, no, that's not what I'm looking for at all. <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> and we get a lovely callback to the Milf Academy, where we get a shot of recess, and it's just an empty playground. <laughs> I find it odd, actually, that Buster seems afraid of the Milford Academy, because, you know, we know from the episode that featured the Milford Academy that Buster was... He liked it so much, he ended up staying a couple of semesters past his graduation. <laughs> he was so good at uh, being neither seen nor heard. Um, now, I like as well how Michael describes openings, which is the, the, the school that uh, maybe has been accepted into, as... Another one of those gradeless, structuralist, new-age feel-gooderies. Um, <laughs> which, it, of course, calls back to the fact that when Lindsay uh, was in Boston with Maybe, her report card had a number of symbols on there, uh, t talking about how maybe felt about the subject and in one particular case uh, it, it, when it came to spelling she felt crocodile um, so it, it's kind of a bit of a return to, to that kind of that thing and it, and Lindsay talks about it teaching about self-expression and getting in touch with feelings and she yes, says but... that he doesn't have any and this is where we get a couple of my favourite exchanges as Job labels him the boy who couldn't cry <laughs> and Buster <laughs> screams out He's a robot, just as his own hand falls onto the table. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, this is where Tobias says, Yes, he's like the steel man from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> and Michael goes, Tin man? And I, I like how Tobias goes, Is that what he's called? <laughs> and, and Lindsay interjecting with, He knows. It's just, that's, and I, I just love that joke because, um, you know, in this particular episode, like one of the themes that's also expressed is how unrelatable the blues are. Yep. And so making that kind of joke where you're making a reference to the Wizard of Oz, but you're making an incorrect reference, and then it's being corrected because of a kind of subtextual joke, is not usually a joke that you would have in a sitcom. So I think it's quite interesting, you know, like... And later on we'll get to hear basically some of the comment cards that Fox got about this program uh, put into script form by Mitch Hurwitz. Um, but, you know, they're basically not seen as very relatable. And uh, we find out that, you know, Michael is going to start giving people tasks and he says that Lindsay's going to be in charge of the house. And, um, you know, Lucille says, well, at least you'll lose weight when referencing the, uh, the cooking that uh, Lindsay will be doing. And <laughs> Buster, he says, about the one time that Lucille cooked, he says... You gave us cereal in an ashtray. Um, <laughs> which is such a, a vivid image. And I don't know when I don't know when Lucille would have ever like oh she they do say of course that she had to cook when Rose's mom died. Mm. But I like I don't even I don't even know that 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 Lucy I see Lucille making the effort to take cereal out of a box yeah. and put it into a different container. I think it's like yeah, exactly I'm not even going that half ass in her attempts to nutrition. We get a great joke here with Will Arnett. Um, the family in this episode are kind of split into little pairs for the kind of subplots. Um, and the first of those that is established here um, is Lucille and Job, where <laughs> Job's like, you know, should we get a, should we get a job? Uh, you know, because Michael's like, you know, find some work. And he's like, as what? A waiter? Can I get you something, madam? And he kind of like play acts this thing with Lucille. And she goes... She starts laughing and then she goes, I will have a vodka though. And of course, <laughs> you know, this is where Michael says, You know, if you'd ever accidentally worked a day in your life, you'd know that there's no indignity in it. Of course, Job then goes, Great, she'll have a vodka. Which is actually a, kind of a rare bit of wit from Job, really, because he's kind of turning it back on Michael's ear in a way that he 
usually doesn't do so competently, but I do have to give him kudos for that. It's like genuinely throwing it back in Michael's face. Yeah, that is a really quick... And of course, you know, Will Arnett, I've said it many times before, as we've only got four more episodes left after this, I'll say it again. I think Will Arnett and Jason Bateman have a great chemistry playing as brothers fantastic um, mm-hmm. you know you, you like you you in all the episodes like even in the pilot you get the idea that you know job is this failure and michael is the kind of the chosen son and that kind of plays out in every single episode basically that that, that rivalry of course part of that was also done as boy fights mm-hmm. um you know so <laughs> that kind of that kind of shows where it came from but <laughs> it's funny that you already kind of know like before we get introduced to boy fights, you know about boy fights because you can tell from their dynamic. And this is, of course, where George... We start to get very meta in this episode. This episode uh, <laughs> seems to be deliberately trying to alienate any new viewers that it possibly can in any way. Um, yeah, it's like... We... It's, it's, it's full of self-references and references to the business itself. Like, they, they, the part of that George Sr. is going to talk about, about the later about Showtime and the HBO and also the, the whole intro with the this is a special episode and all that, it's to alienate viewers. It's like, they did it before they were cancelled, but it's like, they already knew they were doomed. So let's let, let's go full in in our meta-ness. George says here that they're going to throw a, uh, you know, a, a fun dinner. Um, and Lucille says, you know, that they, they don't want to seem desperate. Now, a, a couple of sentences before that, George said... Instead of us selling out and becoming housewives and waiters. And this is like a, a kind of the fact that Lucille says, let's not become desperate. And George has already said housewives. And Mark Cherry has, of course, been on the show himself, <laughs> uh, pointing out that the show Desperate Housewives is a satire. Yes, indeed. Um, so that, I think, is a little subtle hint at the fact that Desperate Housewives at this particular time, I think, was in its second season so it was still doing really well i think it was pulling yeah. in close close to 20 million an episode yeah i think it was uh, which these days almost unheard of i think it was going through a bit of a sophomore slump but obviously was still getting much better ratings and much better much more like popular culture attention than arrest development would have been at this point for sure the second yeah. season wasn't very good but it was still an important show yeah i mean if you can go through a sophomore slump having alfred woodard in your second yeah. season yeah it's still a pretty good slump to be in. <laughs> not bad. Not bad. Um, yeah. yeah. And, of course, you know, Michael says, I think actually the, the waiters thing and the whole plot line about that is also a little bit of a hint towards the show Kitchen Confidential, which um, was the time slot companion for this uh, series for like four episodes before they cancelled it, <laughs> uh, which was, of course, uh, Bradley Cooper's big jump after leaving um, Alias, uh, which was another show yeah. which was up against Arrested Development and was a success. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, he uh, apparently uh, Bradley Cooper did not enjoy being on the set of Alias uh, due to the romance between Michael Vartan and uh, uh, Jennifer. Jennifer Garner. Uh, apparently, that rubbed a few people the wrong way. Mm. Um, so, you know, Michael says it's cu- it's hard to accept it's come to begging, and of course, George Senior says, and I love Jeffrey Tambor's delivery of this particular line. He goes, "Sometimes it's the only way to stay in the game." And then, of course, the narrator in possibly the biggest meta moment that the show will ever have says please tell your friends about this show <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's worth mentioning that when um, uh, when George Senior mentions Save Our Blues a website pops up on the screen <laughs> accompanied by a little bit of a kind of a musical sting uh, to get our attention and very quickly we've established what everyone is going to be doing um, although of course at this particular point um, 
Job doesn't realise that he's going to be playing a waiter for the rest of the episode. Um, and obviously Lindsay, um, it, it, now that she's kind of taking care of the house, um, she appeals to her uh, her brother in a particular way. We, we find Lindsay, um, you know, taking care of the house. And of course Michael says, um, you're sort of doing it. Uh, which the narrator kind of talks over the top of, which is a, a kind of key of these last few episodes. To save time, the narrator basically starts <laughs> doubling up on lines that people are actually saying on screen. Um, and <laughs> Lindsay has found some canned ham, and she's put it in a pot of boiling water, and she asks Michael to guess what she is going to call it. And of course, he says, soup, like any normal person would, and she goes, <laughs> hot ham water. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great kind of weird thing. Um, and, you know, Lindsay starts complimenting herself, saying how, how good a mom she is. And she says it's because maybe's never around, um, which I think is quite funny. And the, Lindsay and Tobias suggest that maybe George Michael should go to openings with maybe. Um, and I like that Michael says, uh, my son expresses himself just fine. And as George Michael walks in, he's like, uh, yeah, uh, fine, yeah, um, I don't care, what's up? <laughs> like, <laughs> stutters. Michael Sarah like, times it so perfectly, and he just stutters so perfectly here. Um, and then, of course, Tobias goes, yes, he's a regular Freddie Wilson, that one. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the fact that Tobias is making an obscure reference, and it's so obscure that neither of the people that he's making the reference to get what he's talking about, and both of them are like, I don't get that reference. The, the narrator lets us know that it is um, the, one of the guys from um, the Village People. Basically, or like a Village People-esque parody or something like that. Or I wasn't sure if it was actually the Village People or... No, it, yeah, that it's is not actually... Okay. Village People. Yes, yeah. yes, I wasn't sure. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was... Yeah, I kind of like... I rewatched that up the set a couple times for this. Uh, I kind of liked how the first time... <laughs> The first time I saw that, I thought, like, oh, maybe it's so obscure that Tobias doesn't know the reference he's making. And then the second time, I was like, oh, yeah, it's probably just uh, Tobias is actually gay joke. That works either way, I suppose. Yeah. That's what they're going for. <laughs> yes. The village people, you know, well known for being uh, gay icons. But the funny thing is, uh, is that the, the guy that is circled in the photograph that pops up is one is the I think the only straight member of that particular lineup of village people. <laughs> so not only is it an obscure reference, his name isn't Freddie Wilson either, by the way. Right. Not only is it an obscure, obscure reference, but it's also a double reference to the fact that the person being circled is the only one out of that lineup who isn't gay. And I think that goes part of what you were saying about Ron Howard's narration too, the fact that he's just so succinct about it like he doesn't like go into it all like oh freddie wilson was a specific member of the village people he happened to be the only true one it's just like it's this guy now let's move on to the next this guy in the circle. yeah so impatient. <laughs> yeah uh, and of course you know um george michael is studying for the sats um and he goes to get an, a cream soda and Lindsay he wants to make stuff. it for him but he you know he gets it quickly and then he checks the stove and this this Leads to Tobias saying that, uh... You know, Michael, if I may take off my acting pants for a moment and pull my anauropus stocking over my head. <laughs> Which is a very kind of specific uh, visual that he's going for there. Yeah, for me, um, for me, it's not quite as memorable as his Barbra Streisand Prince of Tides pants, but it's definitely, yeah, it's yeah, up ass, there. <laughs> yeah, his ass-masking ass pants. Yes. Um, yeah, and he talks here about how he may have the uh, OC disorder, to which, of course, Michael says, 
Don't call it that. Uh, <laughs> and I like here how we we get to this joke is so well executed that you know um, we we see what is bothering um, George Michael, which is that Lindsay is terrible at everything, and she's to, to make and to make cream soda, she pours baking soda and cream into uh, you know to make a drink, and she shows she shows this letter to um, Michael where he reads it out. Uh, and they've they, they've like um, I think they've like mounted it on something, isn't it? It's like a like a, a little wooden thing. And as he's reading it, he gets to the end, and he's like, <laughs> "And we wish her luck in all her." And he goes, "It says over." And he goes, "I'm probably gonna have to crack this open to be sure, but this sounds like an expulsion letter." And <laughs> as he kind of like breaks it open, he goes, "She's never been to class." <laughs> um, which which reveals, of course, that Lindsay and Tobias thought that. It was a boarding school, and that's where maybe was. But I loved that the fact that they thought it was a boarding school leads into a great kind of um, wordplay, as the narrator says, maybe he'd been on set of something called Snowboarding School 2. Um, <laughs> so there is a boarding school, you know, involved, but just not in the way uh, that we think. Um, and, of course, this is, this is uh, you know, Tobias starts leaning heavily into... Um, his sexuality once again, where um, Lindsay suggests that if she can become a more traditional mother, then he can start being more of a, and Tobias interrupts by saying, non-traditional mother. Yes, you're right. <laughs> After all, I am her father. Which just... <laughs> it makes no sense. <laughs> yep, there you go. Yeah. How, how he misses it so quickly is like, like it's okay. quite funny. <laughs> I like as well that, you know, as, as George Michael does his, uh, you know, OC disorder... Um, actions where he walks in and says the burners are still off and I've rewashed all the clothes there's like a kind of suspenseful music cue that plays like under each time that he does that just to kind of clue you in as to what he's doing um, and I love this whole joke about Job being a waiter because it's like I feel like if they'd have if they'd have had a few more episodes this probably would have run from the start of the episode right up to the very end but as it is, it's kind of like a brief joke done over like a kind of four minute span. Um, and Job arrives at the club, uh, which is where Lucille has insisted she needs to be so she can help raise money. Um, and he walks up behind um, Lucille and he does like a voice where he goes, your drink, madam, like taking taking it away from um, from the waiter who's passing. And then he get he like kind of laughing to himself, and then saying, "Can I get you anything?" And of course, Lucille's like, "Get that one out of here." Um, and <laughs> Job, I like the way Will Arnett delivers the line where he goes, "As you please." And then this is where the narrator tells us that Lucille had never made eye contact with a waiter, so of course she doesn't <laughs> realise that Job is doing the joke. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, Jack McBrayer, uh, later of Thirty Rock, and previously of an episode where he. He, he detailed his interactions with Lucille in the past. Um, he is the, the kind of the, the waiter in the scene and he, he gives Job a tray and <laughs> Job takes the tray and plays into the bit going, why not? I'm just a waiter. And, and then the narrator tells us that he, he kept it up. And Job delivers all of these lines looking towards Lucille as though she's going to suddenly like be clued in on the joke and find it amusing. Um, and I like the way he kind of looks at this couple and goes, we're all out of the halibut. She's <laughs> like, he's providing like valuable information as a waiter to this to these customers, and yet, like 
they don't like. I don't know. I just love the layers of it because it's like he's playing at being a waiter, but it turns out he's really good at being a waiter. Yeah, it's like an it's like another um, level of ironic detachment. Really. Yes, and of course the the, uh, the narrator lets us know that the the joke is over, but the lunch rush was just beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that Joe like he doesn't break character. He he keeps going with it, and he. You know, he ends up actually. You know, uh, it seems like he's he's actually enjoying himself. Uh, you know, doing something useful. Um, and when we return to you know Balboa Towers, we find we, I love this line from uh, George Senior because you know Buster's like, um, has has Lucille left anything for him to eat? And of course George goes, no, just the soup and a half a sandwich and a whole sandwich for me. And obviously, as the viewer, you're like, well, I'm guessing that the soup and half sandwich was for Buster. But George cares so little for Buster that he basically is just eating the whole thing. Um, and and then, of course, the, the meta-references come thick and fast. As you said earlier, Enrique, you know, the, uh, the, home, building, the home builders organization <laughs> is mentioned. Um, and, of course, Michael says, HBO's not going to want us. Um, <laughs> and I, I think the funny thing is, like at this particular time, I think that if Arrested Development had gone to HBO, which was never going to happen because no. you know it, it was produced mm. by Fox. You know, if this had been something that was on, say, NBC, and it was produced by Warner's, they might have taken it, but it was never going to go to HBO. But if it had, they probably would have fitted perfectly. And I think that you know, an extra kind of few minutes on each episode. Um, in a HBO format, would have actually benefited the show a little bit because it would have given them a chance to kind of pile a few more jokes in or or let some of the storylines breathe a little bit. Yeah, and, uh, but maybe it wasn't because I recall that the fourth season has uneven running times and sometimes the episodes yeah. went on for too long. So maybe it would have worked or maybe not. Maybe it would have been better back then because the, the, the series would have been fresher. Right, but, but I feel like... Uh... And on HBO, it would have like it could have been longer, but it wouldn't have been like as long as some of those Netflix ones. Because Netflix ones, a lot of them like they go past thirty minutes. Like some of them are like thirty-five, yeah. almost forty. Yeah. Whereas like HBO, I, like there's, there's one which is forty-three minutes long. Exactly. Whereas <laughs> HBO, like you can go long, but unless it's like a really special episode, uh, for yeah, some yeah. like your Game of Thrones, your Homelands, well, it's Showtime, but regardless, like it's usually always within that 30 minute mark, like always like coming up, to yeah, 30, yeah. which maybe still is maybe a little bit longer for rest development, which is so great because it's so tight for its first three seasons in its runtime. But you know, maybe some things could have been allowed to breathe a bit more. I just like, I kind of imagine like this being paired up with say the comeback or something around that time, like, you know, which yeah. had just kind of aired yeah. and been canceled around this point. Uh, and it feels like they would have, you know, in a hypothetical world, been a, a decent compliment to each other around with what HBO was doing. And I think the seasons probably would have ended up being 10 episodes long or something, so they maybe could have got another two seasons out of it, or three seasons maybe, and I think it would have, it wouldn't have felt too long, it would have, it would have kind of, it maybe would have just had, you know, slightly more structured stories, you know, because obviously with network TV, you, you plan for 13, and then if you get another nine, then you have to add more stories in, and Whereas if you know you're only going to get ten, then you plan for ten, and it and it's it's a bit neater. Right. Yeah. Something which uh, a recent show which was on the air on NBC, the the Good Place, that was always going to be thirteen episodes. And when you get to the end of that season, I'm not going to spoil it for anyone because I think it is possibly one of the the best new shows of kind of the last three or four years. When you got to the thirteenth episode, that show was clearly made to be thirteen episodes. So, yes. And it was structured that way, and I I think you know that can work. 
you know, a lot of um, network sitcoms, they'll get an extra episode or they'll get an extra two episodes. And for something like Community, it's fun, but it ends up wrecking everything because, you know, Community, Dan Harmon could never sustain 25 episodes a season. In that, no. you know, that's what they got for the first season. And yeah. It, it kind of started to show a little bit. Um, but of course, here we then get George Sr. saying, well, I think it's showtime. Um, <laughs> which... <laughs> Again, this kind of meta-reference is the kind of thing that alienated a number of viewers. Um, and then, you know, George Sr. says, maybe we can have some celebrities, you know, like Oscar winners like Nicole Kidman. And, of course, you know, Nicole Kidman, you know, was, um, you know, uh, she was talked about in the episode where her nose from the hours was, was purchased for uh, for Shirley Wolfbeak. Um <laughs> And also, that is clearly a reference to the fact that just you know maybe stunt casting an Oscar winner on the show probably didn't wouldn't make that much difference to the ratings. <laughs> I mean, Char- Charlie's there and only really brought in four million, and that right. was what they were on anyway. Right. So. I think that was probably the, the most <laughs> pointed aspect of that. Like, oh, we can't be one of those shows that does this after we just did it and it didn't really work out for us that well. <laughs> yeah. They they open they opened as well with like cavalcade of stars in in like the second sentence, so they're already going to stuff the episode with famous people. Although mom, one might uh, argue. Um, how, how famous Andy Richter is, and there is some pointed commentary from from Rocky Richter in this in this particular episode about Andy Richter's career. Um, uh, Michael, of course, talks then about having an in with with Andy Richter, um, and you know his brother teaches at uh, you know uh, openings, and I like that George Senior uses the phrase "New Age feel goodery," and we get a flashback, of course, to the point at which young Luce, young Lindsay. Um, was not happy with her father having affairs. <laughs> uh, he, because of that, he... Um, <laughs> this is a really kind of dark storyline for this particular episode, and it only really shows up here, and nobody ever talks about it again, where George says that he threatened to poison the teacher. And the narrator tells us... George Sr. did more than just say it. He sent the man a basket of poison muffins. <laughs> he made the first two, no? The first two attacks from the muffin man, just, right? Just the first two, yeah. Yeah, just the first two. Yeah, you can't but yeah, so we find out, yeah, we find out about the muffin man. Um, and I love here that John Beard in the 70s, with his, uh, with his sideburns, he says... Then, uh, would you like some foam in your coffee? It's called a cup of Kino, and wait till you see what it costs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, and he does a perfect kind of like newsman delivery of that line you know Buster of course <laughs> I like how George talks about how the Milford Academy was great just at the point where Buster can't open you know like this can that's in front of him <laughs> just demonstrating that it probably wasn't that good um, and you know we we find out that George Michael is having trouble expressing himself and Michael Sarah's delivery of this line like these, these few lines here is possibly, I mean, I don't want to overhype it, but one of the greatest in the show, where asked to talk about himself, he says, My name is George Michael Bluth. I'm a 16-year-old Caucasian male. <laughs> My mom died. And I, I guess that's it. <laughs> and I love that. He's talking about himself. He's not talking about himself. He's just giving like a, a kind of police description of like his height and his age. And I, it's just, it's just really funny that he he kind of the fact that he describes himself as a Caucasian male is just probably the probably one of the greatest lines in this show because it's just so kind of like it just shows that George Michael doesn't want to talk about anything that isn't kind of concrete. Um, and this is where Donnie says, talking about his brother Andy, 
He says he can't seem to really attract an audience, but I love the fat SOB anyway. And of course, that is kind of the only real true title drop in this episode. Um, and, you know, uh, this is where <laughs> George Michael realizes that Donnie Richter looked like Andy Richter. And the narrator tells us that they are quintuplets, which, of course, is once again another reference to a show that Andy Richter had <laughs> failed. Uh, called quintuplets and they talk about there was andy the show-off donnie the sensitive one cherith the flirt rocky the risk taker and andy stunt double and emmett um, and of course i love the joke here where <laughs> emmett has not given permission to be on the show and so they take a picture of you know andy richter and they place it over a blurred out picture of andy richter's own face again a joke that probably alienates people because it's such a kind of weird joke but I just I just love that because you know they call back to it later on uh, the fact that uh, that uh, Emmett Richter does not want to take part, um, which itself is another meta joke towards uh, the Osbournes. Um, when the TV show The Osbournes was on the television, everyone knows Kelly Osbourne, uh, everyone knows Jack Osbourne. Uh, very few people realise that there was another Osbourne sibling, uh, another daughter who declined to be on the show, and who is never mentioned apart from one very brief shot of her in a photograph in one episode. So if you were, if you were to ask most people, they would not realise that there is a fifth Osborne in that family. Um, and that is what uh, Emmett Richter like refusing to give permission is uh, kind of direct reference to. And in fact, Arrested Development, in the pilot, they were going to have a joke where there was going to be another Bluth sibling who refused to be on the show and who would only be shown like in photos but blurred out so it's it's like a reference to so many different things <laughs> this is where donnie explains the grade system because they don't have any grades you know a student learns and gets an l or they fluctuate in their learning <laughs> and george michael asks what do we get for that and donnie of course says an f and we get the mr <laughs> s thing popping up which of course calls back to you know a few episodes ago and if you were a new viewer you would have no idea why there's a <laughs> musical sting that says Mr. F. Um, <laughs> yeah. And maybe in Tobias, it's been a while since they've actually been together. You know, one of the main stories of kind of the last couple of seasons has been how neglectful maybe his parents are of her and how often they forget that she's actually around. Um, so, you know, maybe and Tobias are paired up, you know, here for this episode. Um, and I like how Maybe explains everything that went wrong on Snowboarding School 2 in using a lot of kind of like language about co-financing and, you know, Miramax. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of industry terms. Mm -hmm. And then they say at the end, and Jamie Kennedy can't even snowboard, uh, which calls back to the fact that Jamie Kennedy was the one who bought the nose um, that was in the hours. Um, and of course, he, he's made a he, you know he made a cameo in the episode. There was actually a cut scene from a couple of episodes before where he he was in a bar and um, uh, George Michael went to go and find Maybe and um, you know he, um, he like he was cut out basically. So so there is an episode where Jamie Kennedy was in, but then he was cut out. Um, so this is like the third Jamie Kennedy reference in this season, which of course in itself is a fairly obscure reference to be making. <laughs> He wasn't that relevant back then, no? Well, he kind of was because, like, uh, he had just been off of, like, Scream had kind of come and gone. And uh, the third one had... That was... About six years before. Before but, like, his 
much. But like he was also in The Master of Disguise. No, no, no. Sorry, uh, Son of the Mask, I should say, was like the year before this, literally. Uh, the big yeah, box office right. bomb that was Son of the Mask. <laughs> so he yeah, was at a yeah. real career high point um, at that point. And, but yeah, he's kind of like faded, I think, even more since then. Um, I think the last thing I recall him being in was that big uh, Jimmy Kennedy's New Year's bash from like... Ah, yeah, that's him. <laughs> it made him relevant again, yeah, I guess. Hey. That's the... Well, here we have Tobias, and he is listening to a parenting tape. And he tells Maybe um, that, uh, you know, he doesn't know where she's been. He goes, but guess what? There's a new daddy in town. And, of course, the music says, there's a new daddy in town, just as he says that. And then he goes, a disciplined daddy. And then the music, the lyrics are, a disciplined Danny going to spank you behind. Uh, and of course, Tobias makes the excuse that it's a parenting tape. The entire of um, Disciplined Daddy plays over the end credits. Um, and it's, it's, it's such a good kind of like, um, like a disco song, you know, kind of done in the, the Arrested Development style. Um, I don't think it tops uh, Yellow Boat in terms of songs that I enjoy on this, this show, but I think it's a, it's a pretty good kind of like second or third, I would say. Um, and, you know, this is where <laughs> Tobias... Tells maybe if she wants to skip school, she's going to have to work with him. And I, <laughs> this, this leads to a kind of a really good uh, kind of like, um, you know, just uh, such a weird thing that Tobias talks about how he's going to make gift bags. They're going to put a headshot, some glitter, decorative hand soap, and then they're going to send them to casting director in town with funny notes. And we see one of the funny notes, which is, I know where you live. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I like how he, he, you know, maybe says casting directors hate this. Obviously, you know, she has an intimate knowledge of what casting directors do. And the narrator says they really do, which makes me think that someone maybe has been sending something to imagine with uh, headshots and glitter and decorative soap. Um, and the casting director, who is played by the wife of the episode's co writer, Jim Vallali, uh, she says, The glitter queen has struck again. Never hire Tobias Funke. Which probably explains why, for the last kind of like season and a half, he hasn't had any acting jobs. Of course, maybe we'll help him help him out later uh, later on in the episode. And at the country club, Job has, you know, he's approached by the waiter and given money. <laughs> Job is like, uh, I don't have any drugs for sale. <laughs> so, um, you know, he, he he clearly kind of you know misses uh, the point of what's going on. And I like that after Jack McBrayer says they're your tips. Uh, the narrator tells us that... And Job realized he'd accidentally worked a day in his life. Right. Uh, which, uh, I just love the fact that, you know, ten minutes after Michael said it, we get this exact same phrasing. Because that is what has happened. It was accidental. He didn't mean to do this job. <laughs> and it, it also, uh, the other part of the line um, that Job asked, like, uh, did you expect me to fall into your car? Which then gets picked up again by Jeffrey Tambor later on. <laughs> Took me back a bit to our previous episode when uh, he got the, the strippers to the stand and George Michael asked, like, <laughs> Dad, are those strippers? And he's like, knowing your uncle, those are at the very least strippers. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the thing? The, the follow people to the cars is like sexual services? I didn't get at first what, what it was. I thought he was just begging. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is, obviously, here, it's it, they make reference to it here because later on, when he goes to follow people to their cars, he's aggressively chasing them. Right. To <laughs> them. So, like, he's not doing it in a friendly way. So, yeah, but, I yeah, I think, obviously, there's an implication that maybe there's some kind of, like, sexual services also being, uh, you know, in, involved there. 
Um, now, there is a, a very short cutscene um, that expands on the next scene in the episode, which is where Buster shows up um, and he talks about how he's had to walk because he tried hitchhiking, but it's hard to do without a thumb because his thumb has come off of his hand. Uh, and there was a bit of an extension of the, the idea of the, the hot ham water, um, uh, where Buster says it's so watery, and yet there's a smack of ham to it. And there was an extension where he says it's better than Mother's broth water, uh, which, <laughs> considering the broth barely has anything in it anyway, broth water must be, I, I mean, just water, basically, I think. With the, you know, like, he talks about how she only uses, like, half a, a bouillon cube. Um, so, so, which of course goes back on the joke earlier, where you know Lucille never cooks. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, 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 there's a little bit more of that, and 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 I like how Buster, you know, talks about how Lucille um, thinks that he's fat, and he says, <laughs> "I've lost six pounds this year," and then he holds up his arm and goes, five pounds of that was the hand," <laughs> <laughs> which is a great joke, and I don't know why they cut it out of the episode, but you know. Uh, you know, I, I just kind of liked it. And and then, you know, when Michael enters, he t which he doesn't do in this scene because it basically kind of cuts out after the, the hot hand water line, we get Michael talking about his speech that he's going to make at the dinner and he says that he's going to open by saying, we're here to honour an honest man. And Lindsay just goes, yeah, it's always good to start with a joke. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> so we, we miss a few lines, but, you know, I, we, we, obviously this episode is very packed. Um, you know, this is where Maybe is angry because, of course, you know, her lungs are full of glitter from goodie bags. <laughs> and, and George Michael, having done Maybe's homework for, you know, so many years, he now decides, because he, he has to write something about his own father, so he decides to cheat off of Maybe. Um, and by saying it would help if you express yourself. So, of course, he hands her like a pad and a pencil so she can start writing down how angry she is uh, at her father. And I, it's, obviously, as he does this, the narrator says it also gave him an opportunity to smell her neck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, once again, kind of, this episode has a couple of overtones of incest from other members of the family. So they kind of pull back a little bit with the maybe... And, um, you know, and George Michael stuff in this episode, actually. So I love as well, you know, everything George Michael does at openings is so great because Michael, you know, goes to to talk to, um, to, to Donnie to get Andy Richter for the fundraiser. And as he does, he sees George Michael giving this speech where he says he pretends he's the great father all of a sudden and acts like he's all worried about me. But it turns out he just does it so I can help him with his joke of a career. No wonder mom wanted out so bad. And <laughs> I like how, <laughs> how Michael, Donnie, and even George Michael are shocked at <laughs> this kind of paragraph that's been written. Yeah, but I, I just that line about how mom wanted out, you know, that like that's the one that sells it. Yeah, I think it's like because uh, the George Michael's mom and uh, Michael's for, like w former wife, like they come up so sparingly in the show that when they do, it's always kind of striking because it kind of grounds the humor a little bit. Like because it's just something that was so genuinely harmful to the two of them. So whenever there are jokes that kind of come up at her expense or at Michael's expense relating to her, like especially. Uh, the one where, <laughs> where Tobias in a previous episode, Tobias, was, yeah. where he's like, "Oh, excuse oh, you're the me. expert on marriage." Well, <laughs> last I checked, your <laughs> wife was dead, <laughs> and like there's this beat, and he's like, "I'm so sorry about that." <laughs> so he's like, "Oh, yeah," like the ones that kind of make you cringe or make you kind of like fall back a bit. 
and this included. Yeah, <laughs> I also just love the music that's under that speech as well. Like it's it, like it's the um, it's kind of like the emotional kind of um, you know it's like the music they use for like kind of intimate family moments. But it just plays like it it lands so dramatically at the no wonder mom wanted out so bad. It, it's such a such a great thing, and of course. Um, the narrator lets us know that Job is several days into being an accidental waiter. <laughs> Which, I just love that he did it once, but then he just keeps going back. Obviously the money, you know, he must enjoy the money. Um, but also, like, um, you know, uh, you know, there, there was a thing of, um, the, I don't want to get too much into it, but like pickup artists, and there was a thing where they talk about doing table magic. Like having a thing is like a, something that pickup artists talk about, um, and you know they, it's something that they they say that if you you know like if you can go and do like magic at a table, then that kind of hooks someone in, and and so I think it's funny here that Job is is doing this like being a waiter, but he's also doing little magic tricks as he goes, and I think actually if you think about you know Job's not a great you know magician, but doing little tricks while in between being a waiter would actually be something that could work and that'd be something that he would be actually be good at because he wouldn't have to do like a whole show and lots of big tricks but doing little kind of like kind of close-up magic in between you know getting people's orders that's that would be something that would actually make him quite a successful waiter uh, and would actually you know kind of help him with the tips and I, 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 you know, and Will Arnett, of course, he has a natural charisma anyway. As much as they try and make Job a terrible person, you can't hide how charismatic Will Arnett is in the role. And so I think it's funny that they talk about how, you know, he discovered a little flirting help bring the tips. Um, and I love his delivery of, uh, if you didn't have adult onset diabetes, I wouldn't mind giving you a little sugar. And of course, <laughs> Mrs. Van Stoik says, Oh, Job, you could charm the black off a telegram, boy. Um. Which is <laughs> a terrible line. Yep. And so terrible that the narrator kind of butts in and goes, um, We'll just tell you now, she's the one that dies. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the first time I rewatched that for this, uh, for this uh, I think it was like halfway through her statement, I was thinking to myself, like, where is this going to go? And then it gets to the telegram. It's like, oh, just the ink. And then, boy, it's like, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Lucille is has been at the club. And I think this is probably why Job kept coming back, was just to try and keep doing this bit so that she would finally, uh, you know, kind of break it. And um, she says, can we have the lobster tail? And then, and then you know, um, Lucille hadn't noticed Job and then he says, And maybe later you can save a little piece of tail for me. And, of course, Lucille screams, just as Job does his trademark, come on. And, and, and whilst trying to solicit people, um, Lucille has confused Andy Richter for Ed McMahon's son. And so, of course, the woman who's sitting next to her goes, I hope that isn't the sort of humour Andy McMahon will be doing. <laughs> Which I just... I love how they like completely got it lost, and I still like that Job continues as a waiter by going lobster man. <laughs> like he keeps, he kind of does it one last time, um, and you know, I I think um, it's 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 funny that they 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 really play into this quintuplets thing, and and so when you know Michael confronts um, Donny, it turns out to be Andy, um, and I I also like that Andy Richter does kind of give each of the the kind of three characters that he plays in this episode, like slight differences. 
Um, so he's a little bit more relaxed when he's playing, you know, Andy, which of course is himself. Uh, and obviously he plays Donnie as a bit more of a, like a hippie, and, and you know, Rocky is a bit more kind of angry. Um, and I like how <laughs> Michael just has to say, you're there having a fundraiser, and it's a free dinner, and Andy Richter's like, I'll be there. Um, and I just, I, I do like how much Andy Richter is willing to kind of, kind of play into this image of himself as like a kind of unsuccessful failure. Right. Um, you know, I, I think it, there's something nice about the fact that he's, he's, he's kind of willing to kind of do that with himself and kind of, because, you know, there's a lot of shows where people, you know, extras being one of them, where, where celebrities play an exaggerated version of themselves. And I think here Andy Richter doesn't overplay that. He, you know, he, he just, he just kind of exaggerates it just slightly enough. Um, and of course, as Andy leaves, Donnie enters. <laughs> um, you know, and this is where Michael threatens to poison Donnie Richter, um, which is funny because, like, the last time he spoke to someone and kind of made a threat was when he was talking to Kitty, and she screamed at the top of her lungs. Michael Bluth is threatening me, so I, I don't know how Michael, who is meant to be the good one, ends up threatening so many people throughout this show. I like as well that you know. Um, when we get back to the, the the apartment, Lucille doesn't want Job coming to the dinner, obviously because of the exchange they've just had. Um, but then, but then, you know, George, I like as well that the George Senior is like, yeah, good idea. Like he, he doesn't want Job there either. Um, uh, and of course, this is where he says, is he following people to their cars again? Yep. Um, <laughs> I like as well that Lucille is like, you know, he's a waiter and Michael's like, that's great. And it's like, Nobody else in the family seems to understand that having a job would actually be a good thing. And this is where Michael says something where he says... Um, well, am I the only one that thinks that this family is finally starting to become sympathetic and relatable? I mean, that's what people want to see, you know? Obviously, the fact that the family is unsympathetic and unrelatable was something that was said by a number of people when asked about the show. Um, so it, it's funny that they kind of start putting that into here. Um, and this is where Buster announces that Lindsay, you know... Um, <laughs> has been taking care of Buster. Um, she glued his thumb back on because obviously he tried to hitchhike, but it was very difficult to do without the thumb. And Buster says the line, sister's my new mother, mother. And then he goes, and is it just me? Or is she looking hotter too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's really, I find, I find that line pretty interesting. And this, this part of the episode a little interesting too, because I feel like... Uh, you know, Buster is often so isolated from the rest of the blues because of his smothering by Lucille. But I feel like especially from Lindsay, for the most part, um, because so much of it seems to be either him in sort of an antagonist, antagonistic relationship with Joe, getting beat up by him or being made to feel like a freak by him later on. Or just feeling kind of like uh, teaming up with Michael occasionally when Michael kind of steps in with some of the smothering. But... The Lindsay stuff we don't see often, so of course it would only make sense that one of the few times they actually bring them together is a time where Buster starts feeling romantic incestuous attachments to her as a mother figure, <laughs> once again. Yeah, also, um, as Michael has said to various people, he does have a type. Um, That's very true. And this is where Lucille, <laughs> Lucille screams, why don't you marry her? And Buster screams back, maybe, maybe I, I will. will. And of course <laughs> Michael goes... We're veering away from relatability again, which I feel is, you know, about as meta as you can get with with a ca one character telling the other characters to stop being so unrelatable. Um, and you know, uh, uh, Tobias <laughs> talks about um, how he paints their lips red and pops on a little blue eyeliner and then plants a lipstick kiss on every one of them. Um, 
Uh, and I, I think it's funny, of course, that maybe it's like, why the blue eyeliner? Which is a very good point, because if all you're going to be doing is like putting a kiss on all these these kind of goodie bags, you really don't need the blue eyeliner. But Tobias ignores the, the actual question and says, well, she felt her eyes were too close together. <laughs> so he thinks maybe he's asking about Joan Crawford and not, you know, why he has just suddenly decided to put blue eyeliner on. Um, and this is where, you know, maybe has fixed it for Tobias to be torture victim number four. Um, and she says, you know, he's really into discipline. <laughs> you know, which, of course, uh, calls back to the, the song. Um, now, of course, Michael talks to George Michael about his speech. Um, and this is where George Michael reveals that he cheated off maybe. Um, and, you know, that kind of reassures Michael. Um, and because he was gonna, he was going to take um, George Michael out of openings. Um, and I like that that uh, George Michael goes, uh, "Donny's met you. He's never gonna believe that you're up for a part in Wicked." Um, which, <laughs> I mean, I don't know Jason, but ba- Jason, ba- Jason Bateman could be in Wicked. Um, and you know, this is where um, you know Michael says that uh, he doesn't want to get into a big discussion, but he says that about taking. Um, him out of openings but now he's keeping him in he's like he goes sounds like you're doing a great job over there we're keeping you in and of course George Michael goes to say something he's like said I didn't want a whole discussion <laughs> which, <laughs> which, is, which is a great dismissal and then of course once again you have to put your 3D glasses on as Donnie Richter we think is entering um, but it turns out maybe it might be Andy and then of course it's not because Rocky he, he presses Michael up against the wall um, you know, holding him by his throat, and he says, Andy's the pig. And then, of course, Michael's like, well, you're not exactly. And he goes, I'm his stunt double. Do you think I like this? I disgust myself. <laughs> um, and, and then, this is probably one of my favourite things, just like a, fit, a, a really clever, like, visual gag, where George Michaels, you know, says, um, y- you know, uh, y- you're going to hurt my dad. And, and Rocky goes, I'm only making it look like that. He's totally in charge of the situation. Because obviously he's a stunt guy, so he wouldn't do anything that would endanger anyone. Right. And Michael does this great... Jason Bateman just does this great thing where he slides down slightly, and then he comes out from underneath the arm. And then you can see <laughs> how the arm has been placed. And it's such a great joke. And it's also great because, uh, you know, this shot of Mike Michael being pinned against the wall was like... It's kind of like the big clincher for the Tonight Someone Dies bit, where like it's, the last shot is on Michael's face, looking like concerned when Rocky has him up. And then you just realize, like, oh, it's just for show, and he, he like deflates <laughs> the tension completely in in a nice little clever way that still fits with the earlier gag. Yeah, I didn't mention that actually, but yeah, when they say someone will die tonight, they show you every member of the cast, and they do finish on this shot. Um, uh, but the funny, it's funny because like I think the, literally the shot before is actually the woman who dies, so <laughs> they they kind of almost tell you it uh, right at the beginning. Uh, and then this is where we find out Donny has had a basket of poison muffins. George Michael talks about the muffin man. Yeah, he says that he saw it on we love why we still afraid of the seventies or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that why we also, scared of the 70s. yeah, this kind of shows that there were, obviously you know, this plays on the whole uh, like VH1 thing of um, the uh, I love the seventies, I love the eighties. Um, over here, it ended up the format being I love the nineties as well. Um, so we get we get a, a, a quick jump to youth orientated music's um, why I was scared of the seventies, and we see Andy Dick, one more of the cavalcade of stars, I guess. 
<laughs> saying, um... And whatever happened to the muffin man? Remember him? I always pictured a giant six-foot muffin trying to eat me while I was eating him. Kind of a fantasy I go to a lot now. I'm trying to think of what Andy Dick was doing kind of in 2005-ish. He, uh, he I... just showed up as the main antagonist in Hoodwink, the animated film with, like, uh, the Little Red Riding Hood... Uh, Rashomon oh, sort yeah. of thing that came uh, out. the Rashomon thing, yeah. Uh, but but I think he was also uh, he was because um, obviously he had the uh, the Andy Dick show, um, which you know uh, only only like uh, ran for for a couple of seasons um, on um, on MTV, uh, which obviously is kind of why this youth oriented music thing, you know, which is itself a kind of MTV rip off. There's kind of an extra layer there to have Andy Dick, who had a show on MTV, doing this. <laughs> Uh, but I think at the time he was a regular on um, the ABC sitcom Less Than Perfect, mm, that would make uh, sense. which starred yeah. uh, Sarah Rue and uh, and Sherry Shepard, um, along with Will Sasso and Patrick Warburton and Eric Roberts. Uh, uh, that I is, had no that idea that show existed. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently this was also like roughly a year before he got into his feud with uh, John Lovitz at the Laugh Factory over... Uh, yeah, Phil Hartman's death. Uh, I remember, remember, like when I was first getting the news radio and Andy Dick. I remember reading about that a lot when I was uh, when I was growing, when I was growing up. Like, oh yeah, this uh, this is uncomfortable. Great. <laughs> oh, it's it's funny actually because the show uh, Less Than Perfect, which I did watch quite a few episodes of, because I was a fan of Sarah Rue from um, Popular. Um, she like the premise was that she was a uh i mean let's say larger woman and um sarah rue herself started losing weight quite substantially after the first season and because she was on um on like some very high profile diets and so her character was meant to be this kind of like overweight kind of out of place person and then she basically <laughs> lost a lot of weight and she ended up just being, you know, uh, you know, a very beautiful person in a workplace, and, and so that was kind of it. Kind of negated the premise of the show that she like lost so much weight, basically. Did that show have uh, Zachary Levy as one of the annoying yes, co-workers? Did. Yeah, now yes. I, now I remember yeah. that show. Yeah, now you know what it is. Yeah, so so Andy yeah. Dick was still a regular on that at this time. So his 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 star was high. Um, Very against type, playing the offbeat and sometimes comes the office supply manager in a sitcom on network television. Yeah. Well, of course, at this particular time, you know, uh, Rocky, he, you know, he, he lets, um, he lets Michael know um, that obviously he was the one who threatened to poison him, and, and then he was poisoned. Um, and so, you know, he also asks um, at this dinner, do you want him to sing? And of course, Michael goes, a song would be fantastic. And then Rocky leaves. Um, and then George Michael, you know, he decides at this particular point, you know, because, you know, Michael is saying, well, obviously you had nothing bad to say about me. That's why you needed to cheat. And George Michael is like, well, no, you know what? I think Donnie was right. I just wasn't digging deep enough. Um, and Michael Sarah actually gets, you know, quite a good speech here where he's like, um, you know, I think I might have meant what I said. You'd never listen to me. You didn't ask me if I wanted to go to the school. You didn't ask me about what I said. You threatened my teacher. You don't respect me. How can I respect you, man? <laughs> of course. The narrator says here, It was a complex situation without an easy solution. <laughs> Which is, once again, such a great kind of meta-commentary on the, like, the whole series. Um, and then, of course, Lucille calls up saying she's got 50 people coming in three hours, nothing to feed them, and no one to serve it. 
And the narrator, of course, then goes, now that's a clear-cut situation with a promise of comedy. <laughs> Tell your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to the party, uh, where we see, once again, a banner saying, save our blues. <laughs> we, we get the, the, the kind of, um, you know, um, the, the situation in the kitchen where Lindsay is uh, trying to cook chicken, but unfortunately she doesn't know how to cook chicken. Uh, so Lucille refers to it as poached salmonella, which I feel is what it is. And then, of course, Lindsay goes to put a, a sauce on it, and it turns out it's the water that the chicken was stored in. <laughs> to which Buster says, oh, well, that should go with chicken. Um, and I just love how kind of supportive Lindsay and Buster are being here for this kind of ridiculous idea of serving half-cooked chicken yep. in water to people. Um, and we get, a, you know, a quick appearance here from uh, Larry, who says, I sent one of those stupid surrogates, uh, because this is Bill Kincaid from Fosco Industries, and uh, he's at the Fire and Ice Ball. And in the background, you see Andy Richter overhearing this conversation. Um and then, of course, when Michael asks him to, you know, sing while they're bringing out the dinners, he goes, uh, uh, I'm not Andy, I'm Emmett. Um, Andy said he's not able to make it tonight. Um, he's singing at the Fire and Ice Ball. And the narrator, of course, goes, Michael was suspicious. I mean, think about it. We can't show Emmett without blurring him. And... <laughs> <laughs> uh, and once again, that's like a, a kind of super kind of weird joke to make because you're referring back to previous scenes, which, of course, references something else. And it's, uh, you know, once again, the show was... One, I mean, I just love how Mitch Hurwitz has been so wonderfully difficult in this episode. Um, and then we find out, of course, you know, Michael figures out that uh, Joe Senior was the, the muffin man who poisoned 25 teachers during the 70s. So I can understand why people were scared of the 70s. Uh, particularly if you were a teacher. And, of course, George only admits to killing the first two teachers. He admits to a double murder. Um, <laughs> and, of course, he poisoned Donnie as well, though Donnie uh, doesn't die, uh, to the best of our knowledge. We never see him again. So, um, And, you know, uh, the guests have all arrived, essentially. Uh, Job is doing his best to be a waiter. Um, and... I like here how, um, you know, George Michael talks about how, you know, it, it was wrong for him to say what he did. And, of course, Michael, at this point, he then realises that maybe he should do the same. Uh, and so he makes this speech where, I'm not going to say all of it, but, you know, he, he talks about how, you know, we've been given plenty of chances and maybe the blues just aren't worth saving. Maybe we're not that likeable. We're very self-centred. Um, and then he goes, my father is the worst of us. Me too. You know, I uh, I threaten people who don't support me. He poisons them. Anyway, here's my advice to you. Go ahead and take a goodie bag and get out of here while you can. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Which feels like he's kind of addressing some of the newer viewers, maybe. Um, and, of, of course, uh, it's worth mentioning, you know, in addition to uh, Tony Wonder and, and Philip Litt, we get John Larroquette, which is such a kind of small, very kind of clever joke. In the previous season, Kitty had talked about her AA sponsor being on Night Court, and she mentioned that John Larroquette was looking for, you know, a leading man role. And here he is, uh, possibly because he's, he's Kitty's AA sponsor. And it's such a quick kind of <laughs> odd joke. I, I hadn't got that joke. I mean, I tried to guess who of the Night Court guys was the sponsor. 
and I just realized it now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> My mind is blown right now. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, we also see John Munch, uh, the character John Munch, who, hey. won't, who won't appear for another two episodes, being played by Richard Belzer. Of course, that drags the rest of development into the Munch universe, uh, though officially that won't happen until another couple of episodes. Um, and, and, of course, the narrator now tells us... The speech was disturbing. The food inedible. And the gift bags, pretty frightening. Um, <laughs> and that's when Job realised he wouldn't get tipped. And the service got a little worse. And I, I, I love, you know, I love that Job then starts threatening to follow people to their cars. Which, of course, is a rule of three uh, on that particular joke. Um, and then, of course, <laughs> the narrator goes... And then that old racist woman choked on Buster's thumb. <laughs> <laughs> And he sums it up by saying, "All in all, it was one of the Blues' better dinner parties." Yeah, I think it's like it also. Is, I could, you know. I could believe it <laughs> in some way, despite how chaotic it goes. Uh, and then, of course, once everyone has left, we see Michael and George Michael. This is kind of a callback to a lot of season one episodes, where at the end of an episode, we would see the father and son together, and they would kind of talk, and they had their own little kind of musical theme that would play as they did. Um, and of course. Michael asks <laughs> George Michael, what do you think of the speech? And he goes, you do great at openings. Um, and then this is where they talk about his uh, OCD. And he, he realizes that basically he's just tidying up after Aunt Lindsay. And I like how Michael goes, I guess that explains why I saw the hedge trimmer zipping around the driveway. <laughs> Which is like really good. Uh, and then he, he says here you know, that he will listen to George Michael. And he's not just going to hear what he wants to hear. And of course, there's a brief pause, and George Michael goes, "I love my cousin." And Michael, right on top of it, steps on it and says, "Love you too, pal." <laughs> Once again, completely ignoring what George Michael is saying. Um, That's one of my that... favorite George Michael George uh, Michael moments. He just ignores his son. He's burying his ma major secret, and he's not going to listen. It's great. It's another. It's, he's such a terrible father. It's another one of those things where, like, even like even when George Michael, even when a character like offers the most direct response, like where no innuendo can be implied whatsoever, like I'm just giving it out to you bluntly. It's like still. You can't win. Like, still, somehow they'll find a way. The characters will find a way to misinterpret or just flat out omit it from their their processing. Yeah. <laughs> Perfectly on display here. Yeah. <laughs> and then to finish the gimmick, we we get something at this particular time. You know, like uh, we mentioned, Will and Grace did like a live episode, but also ER did a live episode. The West Wing did a live episode, though, though that wasn't until I think a year after this. Um, but there were various programs doing live episodes, um, and. Here we finish with the on the next, and the Blue family get some good news. Um, Lucille says that it was uh, Michael's speech. Uh, it didn't sound desperate. And Michael goes, well, I guess it doesn't pay to be desperate. And then we cut live, and we go... <laughs> it sure doesn't. And then, the, <laughs> and then the, we break the entire kind of thing of, you know, the show being a documentary or anything like that, and we hear the director... And... Michael goes. Okay, let's not celebrate yet. We still got the West Coast feed, guys. Like that is about as meta as a show can get, where it just drops the pretense <laughs> of it being a show totally, uh, just for one moment. Um, uh, but yes, yeah, so, like it's great that they kind of they finish with like this kind of gimmicky ending, but it's in the on the next, which in itself is a, a gimmicky way that they end the episodes anyway. Uh, so it's like a gimmick within a kind of gimmick. Uh, so yeah, I I just I kind of love. 
And it's also great how excited they, they are to, like, finish the, uh, finish the quote-unquote live episode when, like, this is, like, right after they've just been told they've been canceled. Like, the fact they can show that much excitement for it is also a nice little treat on top of it. So, is there anything else that we need to discuss about this episode? Uh, I mean, like, this isn't really anything new, but I guess, like, just to emphasize it, like, I think what this episode has that makes me like it so much is, you know, I love it, like, Ron Howard's narration is obviously always such a delight in this show, but I think it really stands out the most, not just when he's contradicting other characters or underlining their flaws, but also when he actually breaks a bit and injects his own personality into it to show some sort of desperation or indignity, and, like, I think back to, like, the episode where, uh, (laughs) Where they're, where they're saying, like, talking about Andy Griffith and how <laughs> there's a possibility that he could have been made fun of. And he's just like, nobody was making fun of Andy Griffith. I want to make sure that that is clear. <laughs> and, like, I think that comes through in this episode with all of his various lines, whether it be moving forward with the Freddie Wilson cut or with the uh, the begging us to, like, to watch the show in a way that he wouldn't usually. I just find that very special and a nice little bit of performance from him that uh, just... <laughs> It's kind of sad, but also is also very hilarious as well. I mean, I, I love this episode. It's one of my favorite episodes, mainly because it's so packed with all that stuff, from the Richter quintuplets to the, to the dinner to that plot about uh, Job having an actual job. It's so packed of, of comedy, and it moves the plot forward, and it's like the show knows that it, they are gone. They are, it's hopeless. Let's just go full in and make as as meta, as weird, as unlikable episode as possible, and let's do it. I mean, it's like they are simply unchained, and they do their stuff, and I, I love it. It's a great episode. There is a there is a certain kind of freedom that they have just to do in this episode of, like, not really caring. Like, they're off the air, so it's like, well, essentially this episode is kind of plotless. I know there's, like, a whole big thing of, like, you know, the stuff with, you know, the Muffin Man and, the, you know, openings and all, but really... Nothing like you can skip this episode and go straight to the next episode after uh, the previous episode, and you miss nothing. Nothing is advanced in this episode. It's just twenty minutes of everyone on the show being as meta as they possibly can, being as unlikable <laughs> as they possibly can, kind of doing yeah. stuff that is so weird. Like there's two different incest storylines in this episode. <laughs> and, like they they just pile everything on top of each other, and they just kind of don't care whether or not you like it and they even start telling you we're, we're going back to being unlikable we're, we've been less we're doing stuff now that's going to make us even more unlikable and unrelatable and like this whole thing is terrible and like they, they just kind of really pile it on and I think there's a certain level of freedom that they got from just knowing that well we're cancelled so what can they do like <laughs> you know just just do whatever you want basically that's what this episode seems to be it just seems to be an episode where you know the writing staff were just like well, okay, let's put as many kind of weird jokes in. You know, stuff like that. Like that Freddie Wilson joke is so weird because for a moment you're like, wait there, like, is that the guy out of Village People? Was that Village People? Like, what? And, and that kind of thing is like, it's, it, it feels like something that comes with the freedom of knowing that, well, we've got, we've got like three more episodes after this. We can do the plot in those. We'll just do whatever we want for one episode. Um, yeah. And I think that, yeah, that kind of really comes through, kind of like the, the freedom of like being like, we don't care anymore. We've been cancelled and we yeah. don't care. Um, and it's rare that a show ever kind of gets to do that. <laughs> and just, just kind of... It can be kind of refreshing. Like, I think back to, like, uh, you know, the last season of Angel, where they also were kind of told they were being cancelled halfway through and they just, like, squished everything in the like, last half and just make it kind of come off with a bang. Or maybe to a less 
good extent, but still interesting. Like the last season of Till Death, where it's like they were just basically on for syndication purposes and then just threw everything away and just started making references to how they were a TV show and making that part of a character's psyche. Uh, it, can, it can be interesting to look at <laughs> as a viewer, seeing what the what the thought process is between the behind the writing team and showrunner at that point. Yeah, and I should just I just wanted to talk a little bit as well um, at this particular point about. Uh, you know, obviously the show was being cancelled. Um, you know, Prison Break was a hit, which was on like, you know, half an hour after this. Uh, you, you know, the show that followed this had been cancelled anyway. So, you know, it, uh, this there was basically repeats just after after Arrested Development. There was no real strong lead out into Prison Break. It was a self-starter Prison Break. So there was no halo effect from Prison Break either. Uh, you know, Empire, which is currently on on Wednesdays at nine, that has a big halo effect that the program that's on before gets huge ratings and you know, turns out to be unsustainable when you move it to another time slot. Goodbye, Rosewood. You've only been on for two seasons. Um, but in this particular case, um, it's interesting because um, a week after this episode aired, ABC aired a program which starred um, <laughs> starred Heather Graham, who had gotten who had gotten this sitcom offer because of her appearance on Arrested Development a couple of seasons before, and it's called Emily's Reasons Why Not. It had one episode. On ABC, it went out one week exactly after this episode of Arrested Development went out, and it was cancelled after one episode. And it remains the only sitcom on AB like in ABC history to ever air just one episode and then be cancelled. There was there were six episodes made, five were unaired. Uh, no, sorry, there were seven episodes made, six were unaired. Uh, they were available on DVD later on, but basically. You know, as unsuccessful as Arrested Development was, it still got 53 episodes, which is 52 more episodes than Emily's Reasons Why Not, uh, which just got one episode. And it's and here's the thing. Since that day, like since Emily's Reasons Why Not was cancelled, there hasn't been a single sitcom that's only done one episode and been cancelled. There's, there's been a lot of other shows that have been one and done, but Emily's Reasons Why Not was the last sitcom on American network television to be cancelled after one single episode. Um, and it went out one week after this episode, so I think it's interesting to and uh, and, it, and it sort of came about because of Arrested Development as well. And also, interestingly enough, um, you know, the show that Fox wanted to make room for on the schedule, to, to you know, uh, by by getting Arrested Development off the air quickly, because obviously, you know, the next few episodes all go out in one day, uh, was the Pamela Anderson vehicle <laughs> stacked uh, about her working in a bookshop. Which the first episode was written and directed by Steve Levitan, who is better known now as a co-creator of Modern Family. Now, here's the thing as well: the producing director for Stacked was Lee Shalit Shamel, who had directed like five episodes of Arrested Development. So she had moved from being Arrested Development to directing like twenty episodes of Stacked, uh, a number of which didn't air. Stacked only had five episodes, I think, in its first season. And that that started uh, in the April of 2006. So it was a few weeks after Arrested Development finished. Um, and then it got renewed. And then like five episodes into its second season, it got cancelled. <laughs> so Fox were really struggling with sitcoms, basically. if they, I think if they'd have kept Arrested Development on for one more season, or given this like the back nine, I think Arrested Development could have actually... I mean, it still would have only been pulling in about four million. But here's the thing. Stacked in its first season, which, like I said, was only a handful of, of episodes, it got 10 million. Like Oof. that, and Arrested Development, when it went out, it went out to three million. So it was a lot more successful. But when it came back for its second season, it was then only getting four million viewers. Oh, so it lost six million viewers between season one and two. 
So that's what happens on Fox. You know, at least when Arrested Development's ratings went down, they went down gradually, whereas Stacked like kind of cratered. Um, so, but you know, I think that's just a, like interesting kind of that's that's what was going on. Sitcoms were getting cancelled after one episode, and they were getting renewed and then cancelled. Uh, you know, people were really struggling to find kind of any hit sitcoms, particularly on Fox at this time. Um, you know, that 70s show and I think Malcolm in the Middle were kind of reaching their ends as well. They were. They'd been relegated. relegated to a Friday. Mm-hmm. This was, um, yeah, you know, so, it's the final season. Yeah, so, like, like, yeah, they were, they were really, like, they were, you know, the, that 80s show, what did that last, like, four episodes? Of like, yeah, like, roughly, I think. That was, like, back know. in 2002, 2003, I think, that that aired, right? Yeah, yeah. so... Yeah, so around this time, Fox are really struggling to kind of keep sitcoms on there. So the fact that Arrested Development got 53 episodes is actually a minor miracle, you might say. Uh, thanks uh, to both of you for joining me. I'm not going to go to plugs because we literally did plugs on the last episode. So. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay. So. No problem. <laughs> you can go back if you want to find so, us. <laughs> yeah, so... You can you find know, our but, stuff there. Yeah, so thanks for joining me for these two episodes anyway, guys. Thank you, Darren. Thanks for inviting us. It was fine. It was great talking about these this last episodes <laughs> of, the, of the series. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and otherwise, uh, it is goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.